This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 284, a conversation with Barbara Kiesel. Welcome to Comic Shenanigans. This is episode 284. It's our conversation with Barbara Kiesel episode. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. Uh, so today I sit down with uh, the great editor, writer, uh, Barbara Kiesel, to discuss her history with comics, her time at CrossGen, her, her uh, entertainment in the early 2000s, her time with DC in the uh, 80s, uh, her work with Dark Horse, and much, much more. Um, if you want to email us at Comic Shenanigans, uh, you can do so at ComicShenanigans at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, rate or review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, post our HC Realms thread when those finally go live again, and also you can make sure to listen to us on Stitcher as well. Uh, so this episode uh, continues our interview, summer interview series, I should say, um, as we talk to Barbara Kiesel about her, uh, her history in comics. Barbara, welcome to Comic Shenanigans. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. So uh, I guess we'll, we'll start at the beginning. Um, I always like to ask people when they guest on the show, what was your background with comics prior to actually being part of the industry? Well, I didn't have any prior to being part of the industry except for being a an avid reader when I could get my hands on them. And then when I worked in a library and almost got kidnapped and ended up in a comic book shop, then I was able to get all sorts of back issues and play around with them and actually write letters. And I think I wrote all of six or had six published. Oh, wow. And then Dick Giordano called me and asked me to come down to meet him in San Diego. That's really interesting. <laughs> Well, because one of those letters is a 10-page diatribe. Uh, I mean, literally 10. I think it was carefully typed out in the days before spell check, uh, where I went on about in response to a letter in a letter column, or his or in response to his reply in a letter column, he indicated they felt that the people doing comics, it didn't matter who did comics in terms of the role of women characters. And I said, well, I think it does matter who's doing them, and here's why, and kind of went on. I was a theater major. And kind of went on making the point of here's how 10,000 actors can play Hamlet and have it be a fresh performance each time. You add something of the creator into the work. And I uh, suggested, I think, that some of his writers and artists actually go out and, and, and view and interact with some women. So uh, <laughs> he uh, called me and asked me to work for him, and I put him off until after I got my degree. Wow, that's that's such a fascinating story. Well, it worked out nicely. I was a theater major who'd figured out that I couldn't do any things I wanted to do professionally. I was specializing in costuming. Uh, I happened to very, be very allergic to wool, which is was at the time is the primary thing used for stage costumes because it can be fireproofed. And hmm. I can't work with it except in a nice open-air spot. And I thought, well, at Cal Poly, I can go outside and sit on the back steps and work. Uh, I don't think that's going to fly on Broadway. So I was sort of questing around for what I was going to be doing, and the comic book thing came along at the right time, and I thought it would get me to New York City, where I would go down to the Circle and Square Theater and become the next Lanford Wilson, and that didn't work out either. Now, when you did start working with DC, so you were an editor first, correct? I started out as an associate editor under Marv Wolfman. So I started out working on the Teen Titans and various other things that he was working on. And I sort of became the utility infielder editor there, where I'd get all the weird projects or all the things that needed to come out of inventory or all the people that were out of house. So I kind of had my hands on everything. Uh, most importantly for most people's, uh, most people's estimates of the time is uh, I got to finish off Watchmen. And... Started up the TSR books. I had the head of marketing come down to my office and say, I, I hear you understand this. You know, we've been approached by TSR to do comics based on their games, and I hear you understand this gaming thing. And I said, yes, I speak geek. 
and uh, went out to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, and helped figure out how to make uh, Dungeons and Dragons into a comic book. What was that like? Um, pretty funny because I really did feel like I bridged both worlds. I came into gaming late, and because of some people I'd been in high school drama with, so I came into this hugely liquid. Uh, I, basically, I, I joined a comic book club that took place at Cal State Fullerton uh, once a week, of which I believe one student was actually a student at Cal State Fullerton, and all the rest of us just showed up because he had club permit. <laughs> so it was an it was a, a conglomeration of three different long-term gaming groups that had started at different gaming stores. So we had uh, Marines who played D&D in Okinawa, and we had young geek kids who grew up in the neighborhood. And we had uh, uh, war gamers, we had role-playing gamers, we had Renaissance Fair people, we had SCA people all mixed together. So I was kind of like thrown into the soup of, of uh, fandoms in many ways. And late enough in the game as far as their games were concerned that in a lot of cases I was an observer as opposed to a player so I kind of ran around studying the different kinds of gamer and what they did well and how they interacted with each other and what the different types were interested in so I sort of came away with a, a bachelor's of science in gaming without ever having played a significant amount myself Wow. And then applied that knowledge to putting together comics where our additional concept for the comics was that we would do four issue miniseries for the comic market. And at the time, the Venn diagram between comics and gaming stores only had a narrow overlap. And this is, of course, back before the Internet or even really email. So we were going to do four issue comics that then would be repackaged in bound book form and sold as game modules in the gaming stores figuring out the two audiences didn't really touch all that much. So the stories were specifically set up to be a playable adventure with fully formed characters that you could use and new monster stats each time. So that whether the, the gamers were fans of mathematical information or storytelling information, they'd have something to serve them in their gaming. And if they were just into the comics, they'd still get a good story. So we did the comic series through DC, but they never did the gaming module side. After I left DC, there was a bit of a falling out between the two companies, and I'm not entirely sure why, but I like to think it's because I wasn't the buffer in the middle translating. <laughs> you never know. It could be. But I get, did get to wander through the infamous uh, uh, Gary Gygax's apartment in the TSR headquarters in Lake Geneva after he was there. He had, he had been gone, and there was whatever business was going on between TNSR and him his little mini apartment was left which was every gamer's dream before the days of Blizzard where it's every gamer's gigantic dream <laughs> <laughs> wow that's that's really interesting I didn't know about I don't think I actually realized that they made those comics to be honest uh, we did ones based on Dragonlance, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, Spelljammer, and did some Buck Rogers, I think. And then we started them off, and then TSR pulled the licenses back and published themselves, or published through another publisher. I don't know the details, but I imagine, I imagine Google will tell you. That's probably true. So, uh, what did once that kind of changed? What did you move on to, kind of next, more or well, less? I, um, um, I hated New York at the time. It was the height of the 80s and the whole yellow tower power tie thing and the uh, <laughs> business suit thing. And I can't wear a business suit. They don't make them to fit me. I am the wrong proportions to wear things with shoulder pads like that. Uh, and I'd met I'd met Carl. We got married. I'm originally from Seattle. I mean, I left there when I was five, but I originally come from there. And we had honeymoons in the Pacific Northwest and decided to move west. 
Oh, wow. So I left D.C. to go freelance, intending to do that, and then uh, the need for health insurance kind of raised its head. Yeah, and, that, that happens. <laughs> and then I ended up at Dark Horse. I ended up at Dark Horse because I was trying to get Mark Wade a job. Oh, really? Yeah. How's Mark that had, work? Mark had left D.C. and asked me to put in a good word with the guys at Dark Horse, and they said, hmm, well, think about that, but we want you. So there you go. Nope. I ended up Dark Horse for a while until I, I... See, I had the same problem at both Dark Horse and DC. They hired me as a writer-editor and then took the writing away. And it turns out I can't live without that. Okay. When did you realize that the, like, that the writing side was that important to you? Uh, when they wouldn't let me do it. And I would um, just be crying. Now, before before we move too far away from the, the DC kind of era, what... What was it? What was the? Um, I guess the the feeling of the editorial offices. What is, was it kind of like working there? Because I'm always interested to hear kind of the behind the scenes kind of workings of how these companies work. Now at DC, I came in in late 1984 and left in 1989. So I was there for the biggest paradigm shift in that company's history up till now. So I came in at the tail end of the era of the uh, the editor. Where I learned from uh, you know, Joe Orlando and Julie Schwartz and Joe Orlando and, and um, um, Murray Boltonoff and and did I mention Joe Kubert? I'm losing track of my names there. I don't think you but, did, but I, now you did. <laughs> uh, so I learned from the great editors, and then I learned from the writer editors, the people who had come in as editorial and then left to be writer editors. So I had the whole uh, um, you know Marv era, uh, Mark Jerry Conway, Roy Thomas, Lynn Ween, Mike Barr. Etc. And no, I'm leaving out names right and left. And then we had 1986 and the shift over to creator-based comics rather than company-based comics. Suddenly the creators were the tail wagging the dog. And it changed the relationship between the company and the talent. Because suddenly the name on the comic book became so much more as or so much more important than the logo. And that changed a whole lot of things. Plus, the entire field was shifting from direct market to from newsstand to direct market. Mm. So, just about everything about how we'd been doing comics and how we metered it and how we determined if we had a success or not did a flip around during the time I was there. Do you think that was a good thing or a bad thing? Oh, I think it's just evolution. It's anything that doesn't change stagnates. True. It, it, the op- the opposite of change is not to. The opposite changes entropy, I guess. Um, so, any kind of company is going through going to go through stages of dynamism. On some parts of the sine wave, you're really cooking everything. You're cooking together, and everything's going very well. And then, in other times, you're sort of flailing around for your new identity, your new space. You grow to that awkward, that awkward moment. I always say I was at Dark Horse during its awkward teenage years. <laughs> you know, switching from being sort of a small hobby shop to a corporation. And there's lots of it, – it, we see this in a lot of internet companies. You go from the, the eight guys sharing a house and putting something together to the point you're an actual company, and then you have to figure out how the rules work now hmm. and who's going to grow into what roles or who's going to grow out of the place. Now, what was it like, as you said, working at 
Dark Horse during that period. I mean, well, I started as employee number 12 to the point where I was helping to make the, the uh, Sharpie-sided foam core um, booth displays the first year. And then it reached a point where we had 120 employees and we're figuring out all the levels of, uh, you know, who does what in what order and what kind of management structure we have. And it really, that was the era where Dark Horse went from essentially a hobby shop to an IP factory in several flippy, awkward stages. And it just, it's, you know, in both places, even though DC was so large still when I was there, there was a sense of what do we do next? We could come up with almost anything. And at Dark Horse, it definitely was. It, I mean, Star Wars and it, the success of Aliens led to the Star Wars franchise, which I think had a lot to do with its growth and success. And then you brought in, you had talent like Mike Mignola, Frank Miller, Dave Gibbons, etc., coming in, doing their own creating their own stories for their doing their own thing. And then there's all the projects that didn't happen, all the things that didn't come together. And those are sometimes as important too. Absolutely. What was it like to kind of, to be the editor on, you know, a Terminator miniseries, a Star Wars miniseries? Like what was that kind of feeling like? Back before well, it was because, as common, right? Well, because I'd had my experience at DC, it's, I mean, I walked into Dark Horse going, oh, you guys are so, it, it was, it was kind of like going to the farm, you know, I've been working <laughs> in the big city and I know you kids are so cute. Uh, there's, I, in something like Star Wars, there's a sense of responsibility and I do remember the moment of saying, if we can get a whole new editor dedicated to this, we can do many more stories and we can probably make a big thriving franchise out of this, which I think was always Mike's intention, but I don't know if he was planning to get a dedicated Star Wars editor. Uh, but that was, that was one where I kind of, you know, passed it off and said, you have another miniseries on the roster. What if we just put a whole bunch on this guy's desk and then brought in Dan, who I think started it off well, and brought in Chris Gossett, who also did some great new work at the beginning. I mean, Tom Beach and, and um, oh, dear God, I'm doing the name thing again. Because my brain is going Orkney Island and it's shoving out his name. Oh, now I'm embarrassed. Okay. <laughs> Fill in the correct name of the artist here because now is it's... What do you think of uh, Cam Kennedy or no? Thank you. <laughs> All right, now Orkney Island's been replaced by the right name. Hi, Cam, sorry. Uh, <laughs> they brought that to us. I guess they had taken it to Marvel and it didn't quite fly or they'd lost the license. I don't know what the deal was. But they brought it over to us as something that was in the beginning stages and helped nurture it along and got Dave to do the covers for it and all. But it was... Tales of the Jedi was one that was much more built up in-house and sort of created in-house and for each one of the things i loved about dark horse is for each license we'd create a bible a universe bible if it didn't exist already hmm. and they work very hard to be sort of you know it's like fans doing comics in the most positive way worked very hard to make sure any comic that was part of the franchise having to do with the movie respected the fans added to their lore and enjoyed it along with them as opposed to at DC at the time, there'd been a little bit more of an attitude of, oh, the logo will sell it. We don't need to waste good talent on it. Mm. Even though we don't need to waste the, the excessively high price talent on it. And at Dark Horse, it was more like, who's the right people for it? Who's the best people we can get? Now, how did, how did I guess, like, were you, how involved were you with uh, the Hellboy comics starting up? Uh, kind of helping to nurture it along. I mean, it was mostly. Mostly Mike doing his own thing, um, but I did notice, you know, as he was bringing it together, I, my job as editor for the legend books, or the ones that I worked with, was 
sort of put nurturing people, pushing them along, getting them to do their work, pointing out when I thought it had funny pieces sticking out of the edges, but mostly pushing them and staying out of their way at the same time. Hmm. So I'd comment on things like logos. I'd comment on the story. I did encourage Mike. Mike was having John Byrne rewrite it for him. And I did encourage him to tell it in his own voice and to sort of take over and have it be entirely his. And I did... When I left, I mean, the best thing I ever did for Hellboy is tell Mike, hey, they've assigned you to an editor, but there's this new kid that started named Scott, and I think you and he are really going to see eye to eye, so I think you should ask for him. I apologize. Who, who, if you know anything about Dark Horse, look up the name Scott Alley. It okay. turned out to be a really good hire for He turned out to be a really good hire for Dark Horse and a really good match with Mike. And that's the, that's partially thanks to you. Mm-hmm. Influencing people all over the place. I'm pretty good at finding new talent and putting teams together. Um, I got assigned to do Tim Sale's Challengers series, his first comic book series at DC. And we went around with a couple of options of different artists. And I said, hey, I really like this Tim Sale guy. And I think the two of you would work well together, which, you know, seems to have held up pretty well. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> been a very fruitful collaboration over the years mm-hmm. um now in the, i guess the mid 90s you did um i've always wanted to ask what what was it like uh, working on x patrol the, uh, more like the late 90s that was pretty fun I, I mean there's nothing like being let loose to come up with the most ridiculous combinations you can that still have an internal logic and our and our and our great fun and i still i had to fight mike carlin like crazy for shatter starfire oh really <laughs> He thought it was too ridiculous and too much. And I said, it's so perfect. It's so perfect for this because it's so too much. Yeah, but I mean, I... I, I, I did a trading card set, too, and that kind of filled in all the blanks with all the people we could think who hadn't been used already. That's right. I actually almost forgot about that. Yeah, I, I was kind of the perfect age group at the time. Uh, I think I was maybe 12, 13 when this came out. Um, I was I was actually recently had a conversation with Chuck Dixon about it, and I admitted him admitted to him something I'll also admit to you is that I was one of those sucker little kids who thought that this was actually a, a real universe, who, who <laughs> didn't know better. It has its own internal logic. It has its own sort of operating system. Uh, it's as real as a lot of the other universes are. It had narrative boxes that ex- that, that referenced comics that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, I was like, I, I, I bought into this being a world and not didn't really get the joke. And now I can laugh at myself as being one of those naive kids. But there's the question, did it hold up as comics? Did you enjoy them as adventures as their own universe? Because that Absolutely. Because I didn't, I didn't know what they were riffing on. So I was mm-hmm. able to enjoy it just on their own. So I remember really enjoying the Amalgam comics when I was a kid. And I can look at them now, and I, now I can appreciate what they were doing and, and what they were slamming together. But at the time, it was just a whole new thing. I, that was one of the, the most fun projects ever. And I guess you worked on that with Carl, correct? I, 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 did, I think I did one of the issues with him and one on my own. Okay. I don't remember for sure, because there was a little bit of convincing on the trading cards. I know that. But kind of we, there was a lot of back and forth on a lot of things we worked on. Do you think you had more fun on on the first X Patrol or the second X Patrol? Well, on the first it was brand new. On the second one, the second one I think was Brother Brood. The characters, at the the ones I couldn't believe hadn't been used already. <laughs> yeah, I forgot. Yeah, the the exciting X Patrol. Mm-hmm. Just a, I I always enjoyed those concepts just because uh, yeah you got to kind of have fun just mashing together things that 
everyone had kind of thought of before but never written down. Well, now it seems like both companies are kind of going for broke on coming on on using anything that comes along in any direction and having fun. We were our universes were a little rigid at that point, at that particular point when the amalgam happened. So it was kind of fun to just go crazy and just go wildly invent things that were both internally consistent and funnily familiar. Absolutely, I kind of miss the companies being closer together on doing stuff like that. Because I grew up in the era where that was possible. The other project I worked on that was almost at the same time was uh, co-wrote with Kurt, the Shattered Image. Okay. Which was another big mashup of all sorts of characters uh, being thrown at each other. And that was a lot of fun? Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, I just, I, I can't help but... I, I'm really excited to ask you about CrossGen because I was one of those guys who was in on the ground floor and really loved it. So I, I guess, like, how did you get becoming involved with CrossGen happen at the beginning? Well, gosh, let's see. 99 is when that started. It must have been 99. I ran around the San Diego Con. I'm running around looking for freelance work and opportunities. And I start hearing the first couple days, a couple of people say, Mark Alessi is looking for you. And I go, who the hell is Mark Alessi? You know, why is he looking for me? And it was, it was weird. It was almost like being stalked. So I, and then I accidentally ran across him. Uh, it, actually, I heard from Maggie Thompson that he was her, uh, looking for me, too. And then I ran across him, and he spun out this whole crazy story of this comic book company he was going to start, which was kind of ridiculous. And it coincided with, with a period where uh, I've hit lots of zones in life where I suddenly can't get a lot of freelance work because I'm good at doing work, and I'm miserably bad at getting it. <laughs> uh, I, I just freeze up at the pitch stage, and I, I, I go all – I can't remember any words, and I can't remember I know anything. So – I think it hit one of those fallow periods and uh, various other things had gone on. So it was the right time to be offered a crazy job across the country. And I went into it, I think, thinking that I would do it for a couple of years and go back to Oregon. I mean, we didn't sell our house there. We put somebody else in it for a while and then went out west. Mm-hmm. But it was such a crazy concept that I was I, – I, I guess I've always liked – I liked the idea of being on staff, and of course, we were offered a, a, a nice package when we came in that uh, changed over time. Um, but I liked the idea of building something from the ground up. Mark wanted to make it all ages appropriate, and I really liked that. I'd reached the point where I was kind of tired with how how boringly violent and non-character-driven and woman-unfriendly comics had become. And I like the idea of doing something a little bit fresher and a little bit different. So I took a chance, moved out there. It, it was this crazy circus. Uh, it, was a, it was a very interesting and challenging uh, place to work for me for a number of reasons, some of which I won't get into. But it, the idea of the building this whole universe from the ground up was was whole ridiculously big universe and all these things built on it were very nice. I mean, the proudest thing I have coming out of that company, well, it, Meridian for me, uh, Meridian, I had been at three companies saying, I want to do a comic with a girl protagonist. And everybody said, oh, yes, let's do romance comics. And I said, well, romance has a part in it. But what I'm talking about is one where just the girl is the hero, like a comic book, as though they can think on their own. You know? <laughs> That'd be nice. So Meridian was my chance to kind of do exactly what I wanted to do because the um, Brandon and Mark had thrown around a couple of different ideas, and basically I was given 
uh, Parable of Commerce, uh, Girl Hero, um, Floating Islands, Evil Uncle, and kind of went from there. I, actually, I don't even think he was an uncle. I think it was just evil uh, counterpart. I think I mashed together three characters they had into one uh, mm. villain. And, well, there weren't really any characters. There was a vague concept. Anyway, I love that. But I also love what we did with Bridges, the educational initiative at the uh, at the very end of CrossGen. Mm-hmm. CrossGen Education, we ended up calling it. We had a reading program designed by Beth Widera. Now, Beth is a former second grade teacher who's turned into the Megacon owner. She was on staff to work on to work the convention, which CrossGen owned at the time. But she came in one day and said, you have such a large working vocabulary, and there's just so much vocabulary in Meridian it would make a great learning tool and Mark walked by and said make it happen <laughs> so uh, we set up cross-gen education starting with Meridian and one of Beth's, the things Beth said is she goes you know when, you, when teachers get supplemental materials the people doing them always take the easy way out they load them up with a lot of vocabulary and a lot of games and a lot of uh, fill in the blanks when what the students really need is something that's weighted much more towards the gray area, prediction, analysis, uh, extrapolation, all those things that are harder to teach because they're a little bit more uh, ill-defined. So she set ours up so that the normal proportions were 80% fluff, 20% hard part, and she switched it around so it was 80% tough, 20% fun part. And it worked beautifully because we had we did a version of the book that was uh, cleaned up slightly for schools. Uh, and there wasn't all that much that was bad, but we did have the infamous panty shot in issue one that I fought against. Uh, I actually don't even remember that. And we had a guidebook that came with it that we made made it because Beth had been a teacher and she knew the struggles that teachers have. We set it up to be very teacher friendly. So I remember we we set everything up so that it was easy to photocopy. You know, in other words, to to break our own to break our own copyright in a way, but we set it up at a price point where it was almost as cheap to get stuff straight from us, with the idea being that we'll make a little from a lot of people as opposed to you know soak people at the beginning. Any, anyway, we had this beautiful Bridges reading program. We had good responses from it, and we were looking forward to expanding into others. And we actually created guides for Ruse and Way of the Rat. And on Way of the Rat, we started creating a CD-ROM. Um, we did a beta, which has me on it with my braces on my bottom teeth trying to talk all funny. <laughs> uh, but we're doing it. To, we set up a disc that was the same as a graphic novel. But the coding was set up so that you had to read each chapter and pass the test before you could read the next chapter, giving kids incentive to read. Now, nowadays, it's anything that would be done on an iPad or Kindle. Okay. But then it was new to have vocabulary added, to have this thing have locks in place where, where the balloons would bounce up for easy reading and stuff. And we had our, our IT crew working on all sorts of bells and whistles for that when the rest of the company began to flail and go down in flames. That's and too bad because you're right. That's cross-gen, and I say it's no one thing. It's like a cascading series of dominoes, uh, some of which are public and some are not, but it's like 10,000 little things went wrong all at once. That's that whole education reading program definitely is very interesting, and I like the idea that guys were doing them, or at least uh, piloting them for Way of the Rat and Ruse, because those were some really good books too. Mm-hmm. And I think those would have been again very different for younger readers to try. Because mm-hmm. they were they they uh, what I liked about the comics is they never felt dumbed down, right? Um, and especially Ruse, I think especially felt very smart. Mm-hmm. What well, was? 
Like it, that was a fantastic book. I remember that one very well. Uh, uh, the, it depended on the ability to follow a lot of culture and a lot of argument. Well, really good, good writing, good stuff. Absolutely. And, well, there was a lot of good that came out of CrossGen, and there was a you know just as much the kind of chaos you have when you put a bunch of cats in a bag. <laughs> was Meridian your favorite book that you wrote there? Yes, but not by much. I really liked. I also really liked working with George on Solus. Oh yeah. Uh, um, the first was Mark Alessi's sort of pet project in many ways. And what else did I do there? Um, Sigil I liked quite a bit, and I was kind of disappointed with what um, um, later characters did with uh, later writers did with my characters because I don't think they uh, were going the same route. But that's you know what people do when they put on when they take over a franchise like that, they have to find a way to make it their own. No. Uh, did the comics on the web, which was pretty, uh, pretty new at the time. Absolutely. Again, we did all this stuff that is so ordinary now. <laughs> it's like everybody's got their online comics, etc. And it was so new then. And it doesn't seem like that long ago. No, it doesn't. It really doesn't. Like, yeah. And I remember you guys kind of pioneering a lot of that stuff. And it, it's interesting, yeah, that everyone's kind of done it now and done it their own way, but you guys were kind of there first. Yep. Making the, I mean, not, I was going to say making the mistakes, but not necessarily making the mistakes, but just kind of doing the trial and error. Uh, trial and error, yes. I think we did some things very wrong and some things very right and some things maybe not in order. But, you know, it ended in its own dramatic fashion. And then I found myself in Florida, uh, Carl had left me and gone back to Oregon, so I didn't want to go back to Portland and couldn't figure out where. I, I sort of spent the next year trying to figure out where the hell to move to and couldn't, didn't have an anchor or a place to go. Didn't really want to stay in Florida, just couldn't figure out where else to go. And then my dad solved the problem for me by uh, developing lung cancer. Okay. So, so after a year of flying back and forth a whole lot, I, uh, after he died, I came out to California. Basically, it's like I couldn't get my mom to move somewhere else, so I said, okay, clear two rooms. I'm moving back in. <laughs> I can't afford Southern California on my own. I was living a happy little life with a part-time job and part-time freelancing, which is kind of still what I'm up to here. But I have um, – it's – it's been hard going for me as a freelancer because, as I said, I'm really kind of obsessively shy and not really good about pitching my own stuff. And I don't really have my posse anymore, so I don't have anybody sort of, you know, putting my name up first for things. But, you know, I've managed to get a few good things on the roster here and there. What, uh, in the last like, couple of years, obviously you've done a bunch of different types of things. What, what do you think was the most fun of those freelance assignments? Uh, the crazy, silly, fun one, because it's not something I ever thought I'd find myself doing, is My Little Pony. I've done a couple issues for those and just had another story approved. I've also had a number of stories that can't make it beyond the Hasbro approval, approval stage, because apparently I'm able to psychically pick up what they're doing already. Uh, <laughs> uh, and those are those are kind of, I, you know, I never really thought of myself as a humor or kid writer in that way. Um, the kind of things I would like to be doing, I have a bunch of projects on... I am juggling madly bits of all sorts of things because it's the ones I want to be working on don't pay me and the ones that pay me aren't always showing up on the schedule I would like them on. Mm. But I do have, I've got a three-part Wonder Woman coming out in the digital sensation comics this summer. I think it's this summer. Uh, I have, I did a bunch of odd jobs for Shannon Denton, so I know there's an airwolf in the works and I don't know if they're, I don't know if I should say the other one. Um, The project on my desk today is... Uh, 
uh, one I'll have to tell you about later, but it was one of those, <laughs> it, it was a nice tribute to be asked to write this issue. Okay. I'll just say that. I'm working, You can, if you go onto Facebook and look up Shadow Zone graphic novel, I'm working on that with Ryan Odagawa, and Ryan is waiting on script for me as I balance all sorts of other things. I'm also working on a project with uh, Emmett Comics, EMAT. Hmm. Um, and as I said, I'm just coming off four very intense days of jury duty, which seemed to have sucked away three weeks of my life. So, um... That would do it. <laughs> I'm working on... T- this was a a awful case because it shouldn't have ended up in the court. Um, basically cutting to the chase a a charge of lewd misconduct was made against a young man who would never have done such a thing in part because he's gay, which his dad finds absolutely heinous. So it looks like the whole case came about because dad sort of misinterpreted and semi-fabricated some information to get his stepson arrested, not realizing what that would mean, but thinking conveniently would get the icky gay kid out of his house. Um, Wow. And as this thing peeled out, you just sat there going, this is so sad. This case shouldn't be here. These lives are being destroyed. This poor kid's life has been put on hold for a year, all because it comes down to somebody's homophobia. And and yet there's there's more levels on everything than that. But basically it came down to there was no way we could find that this kid did the crime he was accused of. Uh, but... Sometimes cases in court are just, sometimes they're tedious, and sometimes they're just, like, this one was just sad. It was just sad in part because it should never have gotten to this point. Mm-hmm. Talking about your writing style, uh, what, uh, how would you kind of describe your writing style? Do you do full script, or is it depend on the artist that you're collaborating with? I, I mostly do full script with the idea that the artist can play with it from there, and then I'll fix the script later to make it work out. Like, you know, I am a bit of a control freak. I do like like um, full script, but like all Crustion, we did what I call plotologue, where I would type out a paragraph about what the person was feeling and what they were thinking on the inside, not knowing exactly what they'd be saying, but wanting to end up with the face that gave the subtext. So I'd sort of talk about what was going on and not exactly uh, not get into the exact specifics of who would be saying what. Uh, Did you like I, kind I, of working? I come out of theater. I come out of theater. So characterization is very important to me. Uh, motivation is very important to me. Having the motivation come across in the art is everything. Spectacle is also a big plus in comics, but I don't think any spectacle is as effective without its effect on the people involved. Hmm. Absolutely. No, if you don't, if you don't, well, if you don't connect with the character and it doesn't connect what the events don't connect with the character, how are you supposed to really be invested, right? Yep. Yep. And I'm also not very comfortable with blah, blah is the hero and blah, blah is the villain. I like everybody to be a little stripe good and bad in context so that like we set Meridian up so that if you viewed our lead character from the point there's little floating islands or all sort of little different fiefdoms but if you saw our lead character through the eyes of the average person on the island of Catador for instance they thought she was this terrible villain disrupting progress Hmm. so a lot of reality depends on your point of view and your context and I, I like working with that in fiction what are these stories you're most proud of both as a writer and as an editor Gosh, in terms of single issues, um, the Elseworlds Finest Supergirl and Batgirl I like a lot. Uh, 
as as a writer um well, my default is Meridian, but that's almost too easy an answer because that's the that's more most personal. Um, there's a Superboy annual I did, mixing up the Legend of Quetzalcoatl with uh, Superman. I like that one a lot. Uh, I can never remember everything I've written when somebody brings. Oh, the Dark Crystal from Tokyo Pop, the two, mm. um, the two uh, little graphic novels there. That was exciting because I started out as a major Henson fan back before it was cool, and it was very. <laughs> very thrilling to be the first writer of new dark crystal material out in the marketplace that was kind of special uh kind um, of dovetailing on that question which stories would you say were the most fun to write could be the same answer you know what the thing is they're all fun that's like saying which of your babies do you love most <laughs> i always love the one i'm working on and i always try to find interesting ways to amuse if i'm playing with a license and I don't actually care anything about it. I try to work with it to the point till I do care. You know, what, how can I amuse me? What can I get out of this? So whatever I'm working on, I love the most that day. Uh, that's, you're actually not the first writer to say that to me. So it's a popular answer. At the same time, I hate everything I've ever done too, which I think is also <laughs> something you'll hear from a lot of writers. Everything you go back and you read it six months later when it comes out in print, and go, "Oh God, why didn't I fix that? Oh wait, I've come up with a better way to do that." Well, I guess and, self self loathing is important in the uh, theater industry, right? Well, across the board, I think any sort of creative person, there's always the gulf between what you actually created and that perfect, beautiful image in your head of what you wanted to create. And other people can only see what you did, so they can like it or not. But you're always you, ha- you always have that comparison of the perfect image you wanted to draw and the drawing you actually made, or the perfect story you wanted to tell and the way it actually came together. That's actually a really good uh, lead into my next question, which was: if you could rewrite one storyline or a comic in particular, which would it be, and how would you alter it, and why? Uh, I am totally unprepared for that question. <laughs> Well, it's a loaded question because there's a lot of parts in there. Uh, uh, or, uh, I genuinely don't know. Oh, I, I, well, okay. There were, all right. Computer problems. There was one Alpha Centurion special that I wrote where I wrote a plot, got notes back from, I think it was Mike McIntyre, my editor, imported those notes and rewrote the ending and made it better. But when I attached the file on the computer, I didn't attach the new file. I attached, I had started overwriting on the first one and then decided to keep it. Oh. File name errors. So I send off the slightly altered first version. Mike doesn't challenge me on this. (laughs) Why did you not pay attention to my notes? Why did you not change the ending? So I get back pages to dialogue or to check the dialogue and I go, Mike, he's drawn the wrong ending. You told me to make it better and I did. So we sort of cobbled together, we changed something and cobbled together a not very satisfying patchwork. That was back in the day when deadlines mattered and comics were supposed to be on time. (laughs) As opposed to now, where the deadline seems to be, oh, whenever. Depends on the company, I guess. So so that one makes me cringe, because I listened to my editor, I rewrote it, I made it better, and then, oops. That's a good answer to the question, then. All right. 
definitely satisfies the uh, the criteria there. Um, a question you mentioned with uh, with the first at CrossGen that that was more Mark's baby. Um, how like were you able to kind of make that your own, or did you ever feel like you really got oh, to? I mean, everything I've made my own because I just sort of bully my way into it. But on the first, it was important to Mark that it be one where the conflict came down to. Uh, personalities between people, posturing and all that. And I'd keep wanting to blow up things and have a bigger war, and he'd keep wanting me to put that off and have more people stuff. The joke is that's what people think I do anyway. <laughs> it's just that in the context of a book like the first where I've got all sorts of godlike toy characters, you want them to smash and crash. And we did not have, in my opinion, enough true smashing and crashing. Now, when, with that book, I mean, that was, uh, I always really enjoyed that book. It was, it was over-the-top, kind of godlike, and it was a lot of fun. Um, well, his initial his initial um, impetus on this, he goes, I love Roger Zelazny. I love Chronicles of Amber. I want to do Chronicles of Amber as a superhero comic book. Hmm. You know, not directly. It's not. There's not a direct analog. But that idea where you have these incredibly powerful people whose interactions are coming down to basically political shenanigans. Hmm. Yeah, and actually. There's a lot yeah. of that in there. And it's tied into our Uber universe. What was it? Was what was that like? Kind of operating within the Uber universe. I mean, you you were kind of. I one was of the... helping to build the Uber universe. I always described it to people. I said it's like a Dyson sphere, <laughs> where you have all these intersecting matrices, where all our comics are nexus points on this. They all connect because we control the Uber structure. What the audience doesn't know yet is how they connect. And we tried very carefully. I don't know if we succeeded completely, but we tried very strongly so that the rule was if you read one of our comic books, that one comic book contains possibly tantalizing hints at the edges that there are other things in this world, but it doesn't ever say continued in Green Arrow number 75. Sorry, Green Arrow number 75. Don't mean to diss DC. <laughs> but we didn't want to force an audience to buy a comic they weren't interested in just to get the whole story so on all of them there's a through structure within each series where you can read it alone but if you read all our series together you started to notice that characters bounced from title to title mm -hmm. we had you know the one character appeared in all the titles with, with in different roles and you started to get how things came together. And in Meridian and Sigil especially, I did a story that intersected where the same event happened in both issues, but you saw it from that lead character's point of view. Which I really liked. That was a cool but, concept. But we wanted to remain true to the single issue fan while really serving up something for the whole universe fan. But because we had kind of worked out a relationship between Ethogies and had a background superstructure, which was flexible enough to torque and add in the different kind of things we came up with, but was strong because it, there was structure, so the rules kind of remained the same. Is there anything during your cross-gen career as a writer that you would have liked to, I, again, it's kind of doubling back on the other question, but is there anything you would have changed about that you while you were doing at the company? Whether it be on the writing or some of the concepts or anything like that? Uh, not anything that had anything to do with the comic books. <laughs> Fair enough. And, and you mentioned working with George on uh, Solus. Yes. How, how did he come to work in the, like, were you part of bringing him over to the company or did he come out, did he kind of come to the company through other means or how did that kind of come about? Well, I think he partly came to the company because of me and because he was local in Orlando. So he came out to the convention and met with us. And I was delighted to work with him on the Crossed Chronicles for Meridian because he really did a beautiful job on that. And it happened during that issue was what I was writing during the worst time in my life when I suddenly got dumped and was alone. Uh, 
So it was very weird because I was working on two issues with elaborate love stories at the time, which yeah, made life a little challenging. <laughs> uh, but George is just this, um, I think part of that came down to health insurance too. I mean, that's mm. motivated a lot of comic book artists and writers over the past few years is the presence or absence of a contract that allows for health, um, health, health insurance for them or their family. Mm. Uh, that, that may have been part of it. I don't know for sure. You'd have to ask him. But I know he came and hung out in the offices and we talked to him about the possibilities. And then he decided to dive in and work with us. Going back to Meridian for a second, um, you had a, a bunch of obviously a lot of different artistic collaborators. Who do you think was the most true to your vision of Meridian? Not saying that they're necessarily the best artists, but Steve. Pardon me? Steve. Steve? Uh-huh. And was... I did a lot of writing specifically for him to set him up well. What was it about his take on the character you think that worked so well? It was the same thing that made him wrong for other uh, comic books at the time. I mean, Josh had set the tone in setting it up as that sort of pseudo-Americanized manga. But Steve really got the reality part of it right in a way that I found very, very satisfying as that series was evolving. Because that series has as, it core, as its core my incredible love of the craftsman era and hand-built furniture and, and, and simple sort of life versus the, the overwrought uh, industrial age Victorian Victorian era that is mm. Catador and the other island, and all the other islands are sort of different, uh, different um, style uh, sources or places. They all have rough analogs in Europe without being anywhere specifically. Okay. But Steve brought this nice reality-based quality to it that I thought really fit with this sort of simple fantasy story that had at its at its core a young girl having to become a grown-up and navigate the grown-up world and she's been trained for it but you know at 16 you're not necessarily ready to take over the family business which is a position she's found herself in now i guess in a very different way obviously sigil was a very different type of book with a very different type of character um what was it about sam and ray that you liked writing Let's see. In terms of story structure, I think often you start off with, uh, and I learned this a little bit from Mar, but kind of gave my own twist to it, is you have two overlapping triangles of characters. And so you have two sets of three that have different, um, if you take like a Star of David shape, if you have two sets of three characters that make a full circle but have oppositional points in character or temperament, I always bring the main three down to hero, warrior, and jester. So Sigil was all about what happens when the hero is killed. And basically the warrior has to take over as point man because Sam is solid and loyal and a little bit dim. And Roya was really the brains and really the hero and really the leader. And she's kind of taken out quickly. And then we have the jester character as our um, Danic guy. Oh, yeah. And then the other characters in, added in to read it out. But the funniest thing is if you – I'll see if I can find it. My original description of the uh, – the, um, bad guys in sigil was this very inhuman alien type and one of the things that mark insisted on that i found was very interesting is he wanted our he wanted our aliens he wanted to bring it back to humanoid because he said i don't think the reader can identify with something has a truly an alien they can identify with something with a truly you know in comics with a truly alien look if it is a monster but not if it is a character that we want to see in opposition to the humans. And me, I'm going, oh, I, you know, and me, of course, I'm going, oh, I've thought of a new alien race and a way that we work together. I want to show that, not just a guy in a suit. <laughs> it's an interesting concept because I hadn't really thought of it that way. Hmm. 
So, so basically, in Sigil, what you have is the guy who's suddenly large and in charge isn't really suited for the role. He's suited to be backup muscle. And he suddenly finds himself at the front of it. And he's kind of like, uh, um, I know he's got, as part of his influence was uh, Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China. Part of the influence is John Smith, our, our, uh, our um, what's the word, our, our cleanup fix-it guy, our, our booth guy. The oh. guy who's in charge of all our convention operations. And, you know, it was basically everybody's equipment guy. Hmm. But he is an incredible character. And so I know he added in a bit of it, too. And then it was kind of like the a male on the verge of that male midlife crisis zone. The guy who's been the young, strong muscle forever is facing the point where he won't be it anymore. Except what happens, it's kind of like the old soldier who's almost been put out to rest. Except suddenly he has incredible godlike power. So what do you do when essentially your second youth comes around? Hmm. You know, I, that's, that's actually really interesting. I Again, I, I almost feel embarrassed that I never really saw all of that before. That's a really cool concept, though. The other thing was, I have Roya and I have... Oh, God, I haven't thought of the names in forever, and now I'm losing it. The 13th Wife... Yeah, um, I can't remember her name. Well, part of what I did in structure there is Roya is the girl in the wearing the warrior suit physically, who on the inside is more of a girly girl. And then I have the one who's in the girly girl suit, who is the vicious warrior on the inside. <laughs> Just like to th- spin things on their edge a little. I do. Well, it, it's that theater side. It's the delving into the personality, the difference between what you may... Uh, appear like to the world and what you really are and kind of, and just play with expectations because surface expectations have been done to death when we see somebody who is clearly what they are like on the outside I'm bored hmm. I want to know what else they are on the inside and I don't necessarily want to just twist that to oh look he's evil instead but when you get into the layers of someone what's lurking inside what's lurking in their fantasy under the job they have hmm. and where is who are the people who wear the are where they want to be, as opposed to the people who are someplace they shouldn't be? And that that sentence ran away from me somewhere. I don't know where it went. <laughs> what um, when when you're working on Sigil? I mean, you had I guess a, a bunch of artists in the first year. What was it like, kind of adapting to the different the different visual styles? I really only had two and a fill-in guy, didn't I? Uh, I could be wrong. I know, I know there, you had the, I guess, uh, Lie to start. Ben Ray Lie, and then um, Scott Eaton took over after them, but we had to fill in the middle for him with somebody else, and then we had Steve McNiven do an issue, I think. I'm losing track uh, of Kevin Sharp, I think, did a few. Kevin Sharp, right. And he was kind of our our, our potential fill-in guy, and then we found Scott. Uh, I didn't get to work with Scott nearly enough. I think he's a neat guy. For the most part, I have no problem because each we were building all these series, so each one kind of builds on the one before. And it's it's, I very much like to write to the artist I have. So in each case, if I've got a new artist, a couple of issues later, I'm setting up more scenes like the ones they do well. I'm focusing more on the images that they do well. By the end of Meridian, I got to the point where I could just give Steve a couple of pages of Elon talking, and I knew they would be fantastic. Whereas there's not a lot of artists where I can say, yeah, talking head scene, it's got to be really ominous, and have that be pulled off. So 
losing him was a terrible disappointment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I just want to ask... Sure he's not terribly disappointed, though. He's pretty uh, happy where he is, I believe. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Um, with Solus, uh, again, the idea of being part of this bigger universe, um, was that an original, like, were you always kind of planning to use that character, or did, how did that book uh, kind of come about? That's the book that probably morphed the most in development, because um, when George and I first started kicking it around, the original idea was the lead character was going to be like a female Doc Savage, just sort of have her troop of, of um support people and just the amazing person who is so much better than you kind of deal (laughs) and by the time we got to where we got with the series what we have is me as the main character not solace but the other gal Ah. Uh, where i said okay we have all these characters with the sigil how the power can do anything what they figure out to do has something to do with their personality, their background in the world. It makes sense within the context of the world. It makes sense that they'd figure out to do this or that in in relation to who they are. And I said, oh my God, okay, if I'm the lead character and I suddenly get a magical power, I'm going to sit down with 48 hours, know everything it can do, because I'm going to run through the mental checklist of everything gaming. Do I have power bless? Check. Flight? Check. You know, and <laughs> I'll, I'll have it all figured out. And I took it one step farther and had that character be a game designer. So she's going at it like, you know, the the internal analysis is how does it work what can i make it do okay i'm covered so the conflict becomes she's suddenly she's gone from being the wannabe hero to the real hero just in time to be incredibly upstaged by the more powerful more amazing more beautiful more fascinating uber female character and conflict kind of comes from there which is okay you're babysitting god and god is a little insane what do you do next <laughs> now with do you wish that uh, I mean oh, I was going to ask a question about Solus but um, wh- I guess where were you planning to go with more of her story if you had, if, if it had continued I don't know that I had too much more planned out that book was eventually going to end into uh, the big war now were you uh, Which, how, how much of sorry go ahead See, towards the end of CrossGen, I was taken off the main plotting of the universe and over, you know, sort of bumped into CrossGen education to get that off the ground. So some of what I had plotted out originally, or the group had plotted out originally, was in the process of being torqued to something else. Okay. And I know that Tony's plans kind of called for kill everybody and start over, which is part of what we had set up at the beginning. Part of the reason you had a book called Scion and not Ethan is that... Uh, with Sigil, Sam and Ray was always going to be the first to die. So you have a book called Sigil, and somebody takes over as the lead of Sigil, but it's not about him anymore because he's gone. So with a lot of the books being titles as opposed to a person, the idea was as we evolved, somebody new could take over that role. Somebody new could take over the, the, the maybe not even the little Sigil mark and the powers itself, but take over the book. Hmm. And uh, I think what it was turning into instead was let's blow it all up and start over, huh. which would not have been my call. But you know, that would have been riskier in some ways. Riskier, and I think short-term satisfying, long-term not. I guess it's like you said, becoming more spectacle and less character. Very possibly, but we'll never know. No, I just wish that story had ended in some way. 
Mm-hmm. As a fan since the beginning of the com- like since the first comic, it was disappointing to not get any kind of resolution. I understand obviously why we didn't get one, but it was just it was always too bad. Right, I agree. Uh, no, uh, we're uh, thank you so much for spending your time with us. Uh, do you have any final thoughts before we sign off? Mm, go read comics, read more comics, tell people about good comics, enjoy comics. What, are you reading any comics right now that you'd like to recommend? I never do that. Because, like, comics and movies and books and anything else that asks me, I can never remember what I've been reading. Oh, I thought I you were going to say it's because it's subjective. Oh, I should have said this. Oh, I should have said that so I don't say anything at all. Fair enough. Well, we <laughs> should pick up your comics, though, right? Well, yeah. That goes without saying. Absolutely. Well, and you said you will be working on some more My Little Pony? Uh, yeah, I'll be working on some of that and uh, what I'm working on now and some I'm working on. <laughs> I can't tell you about anything I'm working on. <laughs> Except My Little Pony, and that there's a, a Wonder Woman story coming up that's kind of fun. It's sort of, what this one was inspired by my niece talking about her and her friends. Okay. And so, Christy gave me a cover to work from, which created the staging and the villain. But there are three girls in the story that are sort of based on my niece, the soccer player's adventures and attitude. And basically, in this day and age, with kids running around with camera phones and with access to information everywhere, running into a superhero is not as impressive as it might have been for them in their relative world 20 years ago. Hmm. So so we have kids taking selfies and, and in the middle of the battle and, and that kind of stuff. So I'm having fun with that. Now, who's the artist on that book? There are three different artists. And I don't know if Christy would want me to give you that information, so Fair I would enough. just there are three different artists for the three chapters. And part of what I did playfully is set up different styles of storytelling in each chapter. I don't know if that's going to come through in the art, but it was it, it amused me at the time. <laughs> Had you worked with any of the artists before? No, I have not. Oh, I thought that might be a hint of some kind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unfortunately, not. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us today and uh, for sharing us your insights and your stories. It's been really interesting especially hearing all about the costume stuff because again as a fan during that period um it's interesting to kind of learn a little bit more about how the sausage was made and it doesn't ruin it, it just makes it more interesting to me mm-hmm. well and thank you thank you very much 